we vertical integrate by default. So I think that's the biggest jump. The, 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 the approach we've seen from other adjacent or like comparables is that they go with an approach where it's like, okay, like we'll, we'll optimize this one component, um, refine it, make it work really, really well, sell it as a standalone option, then move on to the next part of the stack. Um, our approach, it, by the way, that approach is actually a very smart engineer approach. It's very valid. I'm not saying that it's not valid, but we're approaching from a different way where it's like, all right, let's build a whole thing, vertically integrate everything and press go, right? Which again, the, the con there is obviously it's like our individual components and, and each part of step, maybe not going to be as optimal. It's, there's going to be some gaps, but um, again, it's a different way of, of looking at things. It's a different way of working through the problem. Um, but yeah, we're a vertically integrated shop by default. Silicon Valley. First, they brought us Microsoft, then they brought us Apple, then they brought us Uber, and now drug discovery platforms. Welcome back to How It's Med, the podcast where we chat with people shaping the future of health tech and healthcare so that you too can learn to help design the healthcare systems of the future. Last time, we chatted about Miguel's journey to his position and the amazing work that Vial is doing. This time around, we rejoin a conversation with Miguel Testa, the ex-VP engineering of Vial, a company that's reimagining the way that we conduct clinical trials and design drugs. Let's get going. What makes Vial so confident that they can tackle the space when the company doesn't have a background in biological insights itself? So the question is, what makes Vial so confident given the absence of like biological insight? Is that the question? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the fundamental basis of Vial, if I understand correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that there's inefficiency in the transfer of data in the clinical trial system. That in itself is a very engineering problem. However, drug development requires understanding of receptors, ligands, bonding, uh, bonding, I guess, uh, uh, probabilities. I'm no expert at this, mm -hmm. but Vile's starting ground is not in that realm. So why pivot to a realm where strengths do not necessarily lie? But the strengths, okay. So this is, this is the contrarian view because the strengths actually do lie in there. Uh, actually, let, 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 let me pitch the softball actual response here, the software actual response is we actually do have biological expertise in the way of our scientific advisory board, although it is not the company expertise. That's, that's, I think a very important disclaimer to have. We're not just like, we're not just doing it live and just like hoping things work. There's actually some biological strategy here. We're doing that, a live voice. Yeah. That being said, that being said, you know, um, our expertise as a company does not indeed lie in the biological growth. So what makes us so confident? Um, what AI and computational methods allow you to do fundamentally is actually turn these very, very scientific chemistry and biological problems into engineering problems. And this is, let me explain why. So if you think about, you know, let, let's stick with chemistry, right? Because it's easier to, to illustrate that. Um, chemicals can be expressed in strings. By strings, I mean, you could express chemicals as a series of letters. There is this system called SMILES, S-M-I-L-E-S um, -E and SMILES, um, which are a representation of a molecule or reactions in, you know, I like this just written form. Um, when you have something like that, you're able to easily feed it into a computer and more specifically AI. Why is that relevant? Because what you're able to do with that is you're able to first turn that normal string into a 3D representation. You could simulate properties of it. You can ask your AI to predict its properties and, and basically, you know, give 
digital readouts of it before it's even made. And instead of having to just look at your molecule and as a chemist say, oh, based on this structure, I could clearly see that this, you know, this, this area right here is going to bond really well with that, with the target ligand because of this chemical property. We could just ask the computer, Hey, is this going to work or not? Right. And if you're able to multiply that across thousands, millions, or even billions of compounds that you're able to screen and you're able to ask AI to do some interpolation for you, you're able to, you're able to turn this into a filtering problem rather than a like domain expertise insight problem. You're able to brute force your way into like lists or even like just, just lists of molecules and just like filter it down, 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 um, until you have something that looks good in, in, in silico, which is in the computer. And once you have something that's good in silico, that's when you test it in real life and you start getting your data readouts and you could also like leverage a lot of the automated robotics and, and lab, um, labs here in, in this technology. And you're able to like create a lot of chemicals. You're able to like synthesize them and test them at a rapid manner. So again, we, our big thesis is we have turned drug discovery into a primarily engineering problem. And again, I'll repeat this. I'll repeat this one more time. We do have obviously scientists, like, like domain experts, um, chemists and biologists, um, who, who help us figure out our targets, figure out our strategy, like give us a good science foundation. But the bulk of the work has been transformed into an engineer. Paul. All right. That's an absolutely fag ma magnificent answer. Um, I, I think that the next question then becomes if Vile is doing so much work in integrating systems end to end to make drug discovery and engineering problem, as you say, one could say that you're vertically integrating the process mm -hmm. and essentially owning the entire value chain of drug development. Why go this route if the industry trend is to outsource as much of the work as possible? Yeah, and that that's a big feedback we've, we've been getting from everyone is that the vertical integration story is such a, it's such a rebel story. It's such a, like, you know, such a contrarian story. The, the reality is I think people are missing how much computers and AI are making it feasible to in-house things. And I think that, like, again, a good, uh, an adjacent, an adjacent piece of technology that's not quite in clinical trials or not quite in the formal world is that I'd like to point out is your, your, your 3D printing, right? Like 3D printing, you know, allows you to vertically integrate your pro, like up until prototyping stage, right? You're able to prototype your own mechanical devices or prototype or, or like products, um, without having to outsource your, your prototyping function. A, a lot of machines that are coming out too, they're allowing you to make small batches of injection molding, um, based on, you know, like vacuum technology or some miniaturized technology that allow you, allows you to vertically integrate. I think industries in general, um, and, and there's a whole spiel here of like, the sort of consultants and consultants making their way into boardrooms that, that, that really sell the whole, you know, management theory of, of, um, of operations is, is that vertical integration. It's, it's, it's much more practical now than it ever has, has like people have access to information, to tooling, to systems that just allow you to do everything by yourself. And I think, you know, like the, like the, yeah, like. And now I'll cut, I'll cut, I'll cut off the answer there and, and ask the other follow-ups. Yeah, I mean, the the flip side of the question is, if vertical integration is so useful in terms of, or so like doable now, 
with the advent of tools that allow for easy transfer of information from one system to another, then the flip side or the corollary of the question that I just asked is why is there so much outsourcing as far as you or file understands from the like incumbent standpoint? So why is there a lot of outsourcing? Um, first and foremost, a lot of the vertical integration pieces appear more expensive than the outsourcing version. That's until you start amortizing things and start looking at things from a long term, which is that's a big part of the, the vile story. It's not just about, you know, doing it right now and making it work right now, but it's about over five, 10, 20 years. How does your process influence the industry and the world as a whole? Uh, so obviously short term, you know, investing in, in robotics, investing in, you know, AI and all of these things, it's definitely more expensive than like hiring a hundred low paid lab techs. Um, in a low cost locale to just do your, do your discovery process for you and, and just brute force it with, with, you know, human labor. Right. Um, so there is the cost, um, factor, but again, there's also the management factor, right? Like put yourself in the shoes of an executive who oversees the operation of 200 people, uh, somewhere in a low cost locale, right? Would you? Like, would you volunteer to reduce your influence by reducing your workforce uh, in order to make things better? I'm joking, no. Of course not. Yeah. Like, as as an executive, you know, like, are you gonna are you basically gonna work yourself out of the job? The answer is no. So that 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 should tell you a lot. And again, this, what I predict the future is gonna be is, you know, I want to say in like about three to five years, when the industry finally clues into it, there's gonna be consultants from big firms who are gonna go into this, you know, into these companies and instead of the reverse story which happened you know i would say like a decade back where it's like hey outsource this outsource that now they're like oh it's time to insource this it's time to insource that and uh and the circle of life goes on mm -hmm. no i mean looking towards the future and different comparisons uh with what vile is doing with other companies overall one of our previous uh interviews with what was with dr neil magikar of a one three biotech company on the east coast of North America. So basically for the TLDR, they're fasting, they're cancer focused, and they use data of all sorts from papers, et cetera, to find a de-risk target indication pair to attempt to bring to market. So is is a data-driven approach uh, to, to move the systems uh, integration approach that Bile has been has been using further up the value chain uh, that in comparison to what One Three has been proposing? Why and why not? So it, it's actually, it, it's actually kind of like two, I would say, parallel tracks. What I mean is what I'm hearing from one, three ventures, again, like optimizing target strategy, which yep. is in it, like that's actually like the highest up upstream process, sticking your target. What Vile's trying to do actually is almost making the concept in taking it to its platonic extreme. Obviously, we're not there yet, but taking it to its platonic extreme. Um, what Vile is making enabled is almost rendering the concept of, oh, we have to optimize targets, like, obsolete. Meaning, like, any target, no matter what target it is, using this generalized approach for drug discovery and brute forcing your way into success, um, you don't have to prioritize your targets. You don't have to be smart about choosing your targets. You just pursue them all. You just parallelize your track and you just parallelize um, all of your operations and you'll be able to, like, basically cure every single target in existence. Um, and I think that's, that, that's the difference. Now, we would probably be very, very big, you know, customers of one, three ventures. And honestly, that's actually, I'm actually going to look 
it up right after this call because that sounds like something that we'd be very, very interested in partnering at this time while we're figuring out um, our scaling approach. But yeah, like that, that that's kind of how I would explain it. That's super interesting. But then if I think of other comparisons, one easy one, because you're a Vancouverite too, is the comparison with other teal associated players in the space such as Abcelera. So what differentiates Vile from other similarly integrating or vertically integrating uh, drug discovery groups? We vertically integrate by default. So I think that's the biggest jump. The, 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 the approach we've seen from other adjacent or like comparables is that they go with an approach where it's like, okay, like we'll, we'll optimize this one component, um, refine it, make it work really, really well, sell it as a standalone option, then move on to the next part of the stack. Um, our approach, it, and by the way, that approach is actually a very smart engineer approach. It's very valid. I'm not saying that it's not valid, but we're approaching from a different way where it's like, all right, let's build a whole thing, vertically integrate everything and press go, right? Which again, the, the con there is obviously it's like our individual components and, and each part of step, maybe not going to be as optimal. It's, there's going to be some gaps, but um, again, it's a different way of, of looking at things. It's a different way of working through the problem. Um, but yeah, we're a vertically integrated shop by default. Mm -hmm. In an ideal world, what changes need to happen to bring the way we conduct clinical trials today into the post-AI world? I see. So so if I'm hearing this, this question correctly, can we rephrase this as how does AI change clinical trials? Or like what 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 benefits does AI bring to clinical trials? Yeah. So first and foremost, I think the the more holistic way to see AI is it supercharges normal tasks. It it's a force multiplier. You can see it as a full force multiplier rather than just a, a, a normal like no, just like any other piece of technology. AI is a force multiplier. So in the world where AI is you know running the show, really the, the the platonic ideal is that a patient walks in. No, not even walks in. A patient has their phone, right? They're they're, they're sent drugs over over the mail by a drone, maybe like they, they they get they get shipped their experimental drugs. They take it and they jot their responses down on 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 a phone. And the AI takes uh, takes care of everything from there. From okay, you know what? Like this patient's data says this. Maybe we need to do dose control because dose control is a thing in, in experimental experimental drugs, right? So oh, okay, we like the AI says let's do dose control. Oh, the data is, the data here is ready. Let's send it over to the FDA real time. Um, and in that ideal world, you know, the FDA is already adopting technologies to to be on the receiving end of live stream data. That's just like, hey, patients are filling data in. Like we're able to monitor the the holistic landscape of clinical trial drugs. Um, with, with AI, you know, it ensures the data integrity and quality of things, meaning as the patients themselves record their own data and, you know, speak there, they're able to like say, oh, you know, this this data doesn't really make sense. There's there seems to be some sort of aberration. We probably need to ask the patient again, or, oh, this data seem like seems to suggest this patient's about to get, you know, hypertension or some sort of adverse event, right? Um, maybe we should like call in the emergency room because maybe there's an SAE happening right here and now. Um, again, to kind of like wrap that all, all in a bow, the platonic ideal of the post AI world in clinical trials is that the AI themselves run the clinical trials. Are we close to that world? Um, we're not that close to that world. There's a lot of functions that, that, you know, humans absolutely need to perform. There's a lot of processes that need to be do, but we're also not, not, not that far away. 
We're not that far away from AI running clinical trials. I say it'll be within our lifetimes that AI is, is running clinical trials. What do you think is actually stopping us from, from getting to that? What is stopping us from getting to a world where AI runs clinical trials? Well, there's a lot of answers. Obviously, there's, there's a, there's a, you know, that technology still needs to get better. There's like accuracy of these models needs to get better. But I think the actual biggest hurdle is the trust. Like the trust in the technology of AI. Because nowadays you say AI and there's a, there's almost like this fear in people that it, it will replace jobs and that it will rule the world. And, you know, all of these horror stories, you know, Terminator, Skynet, that's still all fresh in people's minds in terms of pop culture. Despite, you know, like Terminator being an old IP, I digress. The point is, AI, like before, like even if, even if AI was like as good as we, it could be today, for so long as the people and the masses don't trust the idea of letting computers run processes autonomously, uh, this thing isn't going to happen. And, and what does it take for that? To, to go through, it needs baby steps. We need to start introducing AI and let's, let's make it specific into the pharmaceutical and, you know, the, the biomedical industry. We need to start introducing AI into smaller stakes, um, processes, but let it exist, right? Like, like try to just experiment on low stakes. Um, and for like, for us, like, like, like plugging in file, one of the things that we do is, um, checking for error ranges and correctness of data, uh, with AI. That's something that we're experimenting on with, you know, less, Less, less critical trials in phase three, like, like basically like your, your pre phase one trials, your, your non phase trials. Like we're, we're trying out AI data management because, okay, the stakes are low. We're starting to build the trust. We're starting to demonstrate, okay, AI is more than capable of doing this. Um, for the early stages of drug discovery, for like virtual screening and, and choosing your, your initial drug candidates. There's not a lot of money at stake yet. It's time to like really just, you know, introduce those into the processes and, Sooner or later, the people are going to see, okay, this, this isn't that bad. What's the next step? Right. All right. Let's introduce data here. Oh, okay. That wasn't bad. That was pretty good. Let's introduce data here. It's kind of the same as like computers and cloud technology. I can imagine if you introduce computers to like the, the clinical trial world back in, I don't know, 1990s, they'd be like, oh, you know, like that data isn't secure because it's in a screen. It's not real. I, I would prefer to just have my data written down. Um, stuff like that. It's only secure if it's through fax, Miguel. Yes. Yes. 100%. Um, I kind of want to bring it back to your experience. So like to Alfio, just the day to day event. What, what do you think changed from your experience, uh, from the time you started off with Mile to, to, to now as the VP? Cause I, I think you've, you've, you've grown within, right? Yeah. I think the, the very short answer is I don't code anymore. So. I barely look at, uh, at, at technical stuff anymore. And I, I do, there is a bit of, I, I do miss it a lot, but nowadays I find my day to day, a lot of decision-making, a lot of, um, a lot of weighing in on options and weighing in on decisions that fundamentally affect or shape the structure of the company. Um, and a lot of people think there's, there's this, this, this thing that people say about like, you know, the higher up you go in management or being an executive, um, the less you do or kind of like, you know, the, the, like you're basically just, you know, telling people orders around. Um, that's partially true. Um, I actually don't even know what I do some days and some days it almost feels like I do nothing and I accomplish nothing. And I'm basically a, a big 
L on the balance sheet. But on, in all seriousness, a lot of it is basically answering questions that nobody has answers to. Um, it sounds very fundamental and it does absolutely sound like something like an, what an executive would say if he wants to keep his job kind of answer. But the truth is, you know, there's also the aspect of taking responsibility for the decisions. As much as people like, or as much as I like to believe as an IC, you know, when I started getting into the workforce, you know, like working for a real company, I, I thought I was like, Hey, I want to take accountability for everything. I want to drive all the decisions and do things, especially as a fresher grad or like somebody who's younger. The reality is that stuff's scary. Taking like being able to and like having to answer for decisions that could, could cost like tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars. That's a big responsibility to, to, to bear. Um, and as an executive, as a VP, my job is to say, yep, that like $1 million move that we made, I'm signing off on it and I'm taking full responsibility of that. Um, and I think fundamentally that's, that's, that's a big change. And I've been fortunate to have experienced this in such a short burst. I'm able to like really the compare and contrast. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really just about that being able to take responsibility and accountability for decisions that, you know, the team and the company as a whole make. Do you have any advice to sell with this starting up? Advice for somebody who's, who's starting out. The biggest piece of advice that I've come around to is take the best opportunity and take the best shot that's in front of you today. Basically, there's always this, this, this meta where it's like, oh, you know, like wait for the best, like wait for, wait for your shot to come up and it, it, it'll happen. Or like, Hey, you know, um, kind of like postpone until you see the best option. But more often than not, being decisive, and I'm not saying like, hey, you get a job offer, just take it like right now, like type of vibe, but make your decisions not based on what could be, but what is. Make your decisions based on what benefits you today and what brings you the most benefit today. Because the re the reality of things is like time, like again, time in the market beats time, time, timing the market, right? The more decisions you make, the more actions you take in order to progress your career, even if it's not the suboptimal decision, you know, taken as a whole, it may compound to something better. It may compound to something that actually leads to that big thing while at the same time giving you that benefit today. Like, for example, when I was starting out and, and like, you know, exiting my, my company, um, my, my startup that I, that I founded pre COVID. I didn't want to be an engineer. I thought I wanted to go into product management, but there were more engineering roles open at the time and it was more rewarding. So I said, you know what? I'm just going to go into an engineering role. And then that just snowballed. If I had waited for a product management role to kind of go in, you know, there's no telling if I would have compounded myself this fast because just those fast decisions able allowed me to just like quickly rise through the ranks. And when you apply that to your whole life about like, oh, do we use this stack or this stack? Which this stack, you know, this looks really good and looks really ideal, but there's some missing features. I would choose the stack that has complete features and that gives me benefit today rather than like take a flyer on something that's completely experimental, right? It's still innovation. It's still something new, but I don't need to min max that. I just need to make the call, get the benefits, rich repeat every single day. And, and I think that's, that's what I would change when I like, like to what I was younger. That's what I would say to anyone who's starting out. 
And last, just to close off, I usually give our guests an opportunity to share things that they're working on that they like to share. Anything that you'd like to plug for yourself or for your company? Um, I would like to plug in um, the fact that Vial is continuously hiring. We're almost always hiring for uh, new roles, new interesting things to work on. So um, if you visit us at vial.com slash careers, um, that like it will, it will usually almost always have an open role there. It's evolving all the time. We're scaling very, very fast. We're opening up new opportunities almost on a weekly basis. Um, so if you're interested in working in a high growth, high velocity, very innovative company that's tackling drug development from its very beginning towards its very end, uh, give us a shout. Take a look at our careers page. We'd be happy to, you know, receive your application. And yeah, that's my plug. All right. Thank you so much. Till next time. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of How It's Med. If you liked what you heard, the best way to support us is to go to your podcast platform, be it Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever you like, and to give us a rating and a recommendation or a comment so that others can best find us. If you can't do that, then we'd really appreciate it if you could share your favorite episode with those that you care about and who you think would find our work interesting. Till next time.